Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Morgan Harper, consumer protection attorney, community organizer, and candidate for U.S. Senate in the state of Ohio in 2022. We talk about her interest in politics, money, and the hope of Bitcoin for the people of Ohio. We also talk about what being a candidate is like in this day and age. Morgan Harper, how's everything going? <laughs> it's going well. I can't complain. February 1st, Black History Month. It's all happening. Mm, indeed. Indeed, it is Black History Month. Mm-hmm. I completely forgot about that until you just mentioned it right now. I'm here to remind that, you, Jimmy. Awesome. <laughs> you are. You are. So uh, before we get going, like, just can you introduce yourself to my audience and people that might not know, you know, what's going on in the state of Ohio and everything else? Yeah. So my name is Morgan Harper. I'm running for the open U.S. Senate seat here in Ohio. It's open because the incumbent announced in advance that he'll be retiring. So those open seats, big opportunities for somebody to get their vision out there and really make their case to the people for why they should get elected. And so, Mm. you know, how I find myself in politics, though, a little bit of a, a less traditional path. I was born here in Columbus, where I am now the capital of Ohio, and give it up for adoption. I lived in a, a foster home as a baby and then was adopted and raised in here by my mom who immigrated to Ohio from Trinidad in the 1960s. And, you know, we went through a lot early on. My mom worked in the public school system and it just showed me, you know, life shock, financial shocks happen out of no fault of your own. And I knew the only reason we made it was because I had even one parent with a stable job that was able to to pull us through. And that made a lasting impression on me, put me on this path to really be involved in public policy. And then I got to Washington and understood the limits of public policy and the need for better politics. And so ever since I've been very focused on bringing better representation, more community first type of representation to Washington that's unbought by special interests actually gonna just be able to do what's right. Mm. Well, so what was your experience in Washington, D.C. like? What did you do and what did you see that made you think that way about like the limits of public policy? So I went to Washington after I finished, went to law school. I'm a lawyer by training, as they say. And I, I went to Washington after the financial foreclosure crisis, something that hit Ohio especially hard, you know, wiped out a lot of wealth for middle class people who own homes. And, and worked at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was an agency that was created after the crisis, um, you know, in, in the mindset of regulators were asleep at the wheel because they were responsible for lots of different things. We need to have one agency that's just very focused on consumer financial products so that people aren't at as great of risk for predatory behavior. <laughs> And we did that. You know, we we went after a lot of the big banks that were responsible for the crisis. We got $12 billion back to 28 million consumers over the first few years of the agency's existence. We went after Wells Fargo that opened up bank accounts, fake bank accounts in people's names and were charging them fees unbeknownst to them. And uh, and it really you know restored my faith in government being able to deliver, you know, and having really talented people that were moving with urgency that I've always felt since I was little to just get things done and make things more fair, level the playing field. But I also Mm. witnessed that, you know, on the Hill in Congress, we have a lot of people that instead of being on our side of trying to accomplish as much as possible, we're more about stalling. And it's tied Mm. to this money that they're taking and this mindset of, you know, career, politics as career and not feeling that urgency. And so, 
that's when, yeah, I just, I had a pretty clear realization that we don't have a policy problem. We know exactly what it would take to make sure that everybody gets a fair shot to live out their potential. We have a politician problem and that's only going to change when we have different types of people running and winning and then engaging a lot more people in the political process to make that happen. Mm. Well, so many things to cover there. You you just laid out a ton. But a couple of things that stood out to me was you worked after this, you know, housing crisis, the, you know, the financial things that were going on, specifically with the banks, and you went after them. What were they doing that uh, that that was sort of like unfair, that was illegitimate, that was possibly illegal? Yeah, you know, they were giving people, they were underwriting mortgages that didn't have very strict underwriting standards, knowing that people couldn't pay them back, but giving them this, these loans anyway. And then mm. when, and then they were securitizing, you know, these loans together and, and investing them. And so when the underlying, you know, loans, people weren't able to pay them, they're defaulting, then it sends the whole system into, into a crisis. Mm. And so who ends up holding, you know, Mm. holding the impacts of that most directly is like, well, it's a lot of homeowners that were on the hook for these mortgages that the banks knew in advance, they wouldn't be able to pay. And, and then, you know, just had to deal with it and a lot of people losing their homes. So during that time, I don't know where you're based, but like, for example, in the neighborhood I grew up in, you started to see those houses that were going up for auction because they had been foreclosed upon and it decimated communities and individuals mm-hmm. and families. So, you know, that is predatory behavior. And we didn't see a lot of accountability for the banks that caused that crisis. And in fact, we gave them money, you know, mm-hmm. and certainly not a lot of individual liability by any means for the people who are responsible for it. And, and I do think it's one of the things that has contributed to the ongoing disillusionment with Washington, with politics, with government, feeling like mm-hmm. when regular people like us break the law, there's accountability. And if you're very, very connected and powerful, then you're playing by a different set of rules. And certainly, you know, the CFPB had a mindset of, you know, making sure that we have a level playing field, that if you're, if you're in the markets, if you're in business and you're not doing the right thing, then we're going to hold you accountable. And it doesn't matter if you're Wells Fargo or you're an independent payday lender, there needs to be somebody who is looking out for regular people and aggressively doing so. Mm. Well, so let's get into that a little bit, because as you pointed out, there is certainly accountability at the individual level. If we break the law, you know, there there are going to be lots of people coming after us. But at the sort of like the financial level of these banks, where they're literally processing hundreds of billions, sometimes trillions of dollars, you know, they, they seem to have a lack of accountability. What happened there? Why? Why don't they get sort of the treatment that they should get for some of the stuff that they did? I think there's some fear around mm-hmm. challenging people that are very powerful. And this gets to, you know, one of the reasons why I'm in politics or I'm doing politics mm-hmm. in this way is they're pumping a lot of money into the system too, you know, through campaign contributions and the donor class of, you know, really both parties. And so people then are a little hesitant to necessarily push back as aggressively as, as I believe most, most of us think that they, they should. And so that's mm-hmm. why, you know, when I say I'm not taking corporate PAC money, and this is something that I've had to explain mm-hmm. to a lot of people, you know, I, I first ran for office a, a couple of years ago, and it was 
truly felt like an issue of first impression for people, right? When you're, you're one of the first independent grassroots candidates, I'm a Democrat, but, you know, doing things in a more independent way that they've interacted with. And they're like, well, what is it? What does it mean that you're not taking corporate PAC money? And, you know, you're, mm. you're, my opponent, for example, in that first campaign would say, oh, but, you know, she's getting money from people who live in different states, whatever. And people would say, mm. isn't this all the same thing? And it was really eye-opening for me. And I always am trying to approach people with, you know, empathy, understanding, want, th- want them to be open with how they're thinking about things so that I can help us collectively get to a better place. And it was eye-opening because I'm like, wow. If you don't understand the difference between JP Morgan Chase giving a politician $5,000 and somebody who, you know, I maybe went to school if it was in California giving me 500, mm. then we have a misunderstanding of power and how this company, mm. how this country operates and how Washington operates. And we have a lot of work to do and a lot of education to do to get people to disentangle these things so that they can make better electoral voting choices. Mm, Indeed. And this harkens back to something that you said earlier, which is that for a lot of people in Washington, there is sort of like this gravy train of money that they use to sort of make a career out of. Can you explain that aspect a little more specifically with regard to the incentives that they have with regard to the money that they're receiving from these giant corporations and lobbying groups and so on? Yeah. I mean, right now we have a system that you know, for example, okay, this is something that I get a lot to break it down for you. I mean, I, I have in this campaign, just like I did in my prior campaign, I'm self-imposing term limits. So I win, mm-hmm. I'm making a commitment to the people of Ohio that I will only serve two terms United States Senate, 12 years, each term, six years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some people will come back to me and say, oh, but you know, what if you're doing a really good job or, you know, don't you have to have seniority to get on these committees and then we're going to be in, you know, less advantageous position if you're opting out early. And we need to recognize that none of this is set in stone, right? There's a, the seniority Mm -hmm. is a system that rewards playing the game and trading favors. And then yes, you get the crown jewel of being the chairperson of a committee, but what are the outcomes from your leadership or what have been the results for people? That's how we should be measuring success. Not if you continue to move up the gravy train. And so, you Mm. know, system of seniority, taking money from different players, lobbyists, the the corporate PAC money. This is, this is the way that things have been done. And it is, it is something that favors the status quo. That's about keeping things as they are. Yes, if we make changes, they're more or less at the margin. And then everyone just kind of gets to keep, you know, eating at the trough of Washington. And where I'm coming from is a little bit more of a disruptive place, but not just disruption for the sake of it, but disruption to actually make this place work. So you go in with with a 12-year mindset. Of course, it's human nature is I'm going to be laser focused on trying to accomplish as much as possible, not thinking that I have maybe 40 years to just sit around Washington and figure out how I'm going to get things done or have to care about everyone liking me for 40 years, all this stuff. It's like, no, I'm going in. I want to be reading people out immediately about what what's happening if I can't get get progress on an issue that I care about, being honest about what the procedural barriers are to doing that and being in constant touch with people. And yeah, the usual way of doing it is very much the seniority, money mindset, the careerist mindset mm. to politics. And I just, I think the people are waking up to that, that that's not serving us. That's <laughs> only serving the people that end up getting to go to Washington. 
Mm. Yeah, and that's something that's been in there for quite a while. I think I think you made such a great argument for having some sort of term limit so that you know these politicians don't just like continue to trade favors and give up something now so they can have like a better position rate later instead of you know doing the will of the people. Yeah, and you know, like I said, I mean, some people question me on this a little bit, the term limit thing, mm. and because I, I do believe that most of us want to believe that those that are representing us are good, and that they have our best intention, you know, best best interests at heart, mm. and mm. I come with a somewhat sad message that that is not true. Okay. Mm. And, and, you know, and I, I, I share it, you know, because I was also naive to an extent and until I witnessed it and realized Houston, we have a problem here that is only going Mm. to change by having different types of people get elected. Then, you know, that's, that's what I'm trying to educate people about. And so, yes, in an ideal world, we have people that just as individuals in the goodness of their hearts, they go to Washington, they want to work together to solve problems, and they naturally realize, like, this is a good time to pass the baton. Certainly, I will become geriatric while serving in the United States Senate. And unfortunately, mm. that's not where we're at. So, yes, mm. an ideal utopia, let's all shoot for that. But in the meantime, in reality, in 2022, we need to be holding each person that we elect in real time to a higher standard. And it can't be a standard that's just about business as usual. It needs to be a standard that we will have very clear measures for accountability in order to get this that place in this political system to work for us. Man, I am just so fired up. I, you have this gift for like, talking about stuff in a way I'm just like wow I like I want to like be in a rally or something um, to Ohio but- let's go <laughs> <laughs> we need well, you so I think you hinted at this several times but you talk about pack money and sort of like the way in which a lot of politicians become corrupted can you talk about that process a little bit more how like after you arrive in what what happens to these people cuz many of them are very idealistic going in but, you know, after many years of, I guess, being in the swamp or whatever it is that they call it, like they seem to get corrupted in some way. And you end up with sort of the thing that you have now. Like, can you tell us about a little bit more about the role of PAC money in that and yeah. you know, how it just sort of like makes them the way they are now? Right. Well, you know, the system is expensive. And so you have dues that you're paying when you're a member of Congress. And so one of the primary justifications that I hear from people in terms of why they take this money is they've got to keep up with the cost of being a member of Congress. And what's interesting about the last couple of years is having more people who are running as candidates who are pledging to not take corporate PAC money, who through their reputations of what they're standing for and you know policies that they're supporting when they're in Congress are able to build a network of grassroots supporters that compete with the level of fundraising that more traditional politicians have that is rooted more in taking you know, a lot of this, this corporate PAC money. And so it's becoming a bit of a fallacy. And this is something, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to people about even, you know, people who would identify as very hardcore Democrats, lean progressive, whatever is, oh, you need, we need this money to be competitive. And it's like, mm-hmm. mm, no, actually, we're now seeing through the beauty of email and the internet that you can raise money if, if you inspire people and make them believe that you're really about something, the money will come. So mm-hmm. that that's something that not everyone is aware of, but it is very much the case right now. And the other point that I would add there, and I mentioned to people is, but winning for what? 
It's like, we need this money to stay in power. Okay, but what are we getting from the power, right? And if it's not, if it's not, I actually had a, somebody who is a supporter locally here in Ohio who said, I don't, I don't know if I can support any other politician because I have yet to see how anything related to politics has tangibly improved the lives of my family or those around me. Wow. Mm. Right. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like winning at what cost. And if, and if the barrier and one of the barriers that I would identify is this corrupting influence of the corporate money, because there are all the business interests that are able to hire people to live in Washington and be at your door, you know, when you're a member of Congress and in your ear, if all of them are able to, you know, dominate influence in this way, then yeah, the pace becomes about going along to get along, not about how much can we accomplish as quickly as possible? And, mm, and, that's, it, and that's led to the disillusionment. Mm. Well, so I did have Erica Rhodes on this show, uh-huh. and she's running for Congress in, in California. And one of the things she pointed out is that her opponent, Brad Sherman, in the primary, he's getting all of this like you know money from all these different banks. And that's fairly hard for her because, you know, it's a House race, um, not like a Senate race, which, you know, and she's in, you know, one small district, whereas you're you're in an entire state and so on. But there seems to be an inherent significant disadvantage to, you know, not taking that PAC money. Yeah. So, like, what are you doing to, um, I don't know, even the odds a little bit? Like, because I mean, that, that's a lot of money that you're having to forego if you're not taking money from Wells Fargo or JP Morgan. I mean, these are some of the biggest donors to political campaigns all over the U.S. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a this is a harder road of being, you know, more of a, a grassroots candidate, but I think it's a necessary one to restore people's faith in politics. And so I, yeah, I mean, we, we I call people directly and ask them for money when people come to mm-hmm. little events that we do and they come up to me and are willing to write a hundred dollar check. I'm like, amazing. Thank you. You know? And, mm-hmm. you know, and people, yeah, people think sometimes that you're a little bit out outside the, the box or whatever, but it's possible, you know, like we've raised about a million dollars in our, in our Senate race. And that's just been grinding it out. And the reason why I'm willing to put in this level of work, because, you know, I could have, I could have had a more traditional road, I suppose, to politics and, and done, mm-hmm. you know, the more traditional party thing and all of that, but to what end? It's not amounting mm. to anything. It's not resulting in real impact for the people. And I, and also one of the reasons why I believe is that because in that system, it's not about engaging as many people as possible. It's about choosing winners and losers. Like in this Senate race, you know, my, the Democratic part, primary that I'm in, it's about trying to, you know, choose your anointed one, hide them in a corner until it's time to show up, put up a good fight for a general election. <laughs> and if they don't win, well... We gave it a good college try. It's like, well, no, Mm. regular people, we're sick of losing, okay? And this isn't (laughs) just about elections. We're sick of losing everything. And that's where we're at right now. And so, yes, it's it's more complicated to be able to, you know, just have to go to people directly and get the money and all of that. But that's work that I'm willing to put in because that's what it's going to take to make people believe. The most common question I get in traveling around the state of Ohio is, why should I trust you? Why are you Mm. different? Right? And being able Mm. to have an authentic answer to that I'm not another politician. I've already been to Washington. I don't need to get to Washington. I don't need to be in the U.S. Senate to get to Washington. The only reason why I'm here is because I saw what that place is and know what's necessary to change it, not taking corporate PAC Mm -hmm. money. And I'm a grassroots candidate. The only way that I move forward is with all of you. 
I live and die mm-hmm. by the people, right? And most traditional mm-hmm. politicians can't say that. They're operating in a system that is set up to benefit them, regardless of what people actually want. Well, so this brings up another very interesting thing for me, because you've said multiple times now you're the grassroots candidate instead of sort of like the party's anointed one or whatever. Can you talk a little bit more about what that's like in within party politics, like what you have to do to become that anointed one or the one that, you know, the party will endorse because you've been in this position for this long and you've done these things for the party or you've raised this much money for the party? Like, what's that system like? like? And why are you going outside of it and doing this grassroots thing? Yeah. I mean, what that system is like is just, it rewards just being around, you know, the terms mm-hmm. that get thrown around with politics is like, oh, are you on the bench? Or, you know, I put in the mm-hmm. time and, and you rise up through the is like you run for every single possible thing. And then you run for something that takes you to Washington. And I actually think that by the end of that, very difficult to have any ability to connect with people authentically. You know, I'll say, I mean, working in Washington at CFPB just for, you know, a little over or three years or so, I found myself inherently just feeling like I've got to get out of here. I have no idea what's going on in the real world. Washington is not the real world. And I need to be back and rooted and connected to people. And so, you know, a common question that I'll get and being, you know, a candidate that, yes, a Democrat, but not running with the full backing of the party is and running for something like U.S. Senate. It's like, oh, Morgan, you know, why don't you run for city council or, oh, this is kind of a bold move or whatever. It's like, no, I understand Washington. I have never worked in local government. I don't know why anyone would want me to lead a local government. I've worked in Washington. I understand federal policy. Why don't we start electing people that understand what those positions will be so that when they get in them, they will be able to hit the ground running and actually accomplish something, not just check the boxes that keep people in the party happy. That's how we got into this mess. And so I really challenge people to reevaluate you know, what, what we consider to be uh, relevant experience for some of these political roles that changes once you start viewing them as not lifetime appointments, but actually <laughs> places where you're just trying to get things done. You know, like a job that all of us have to have and have some accountability and outcomes in any period of time that we're working them. Mm. Well, so you're obviously outside of the traditional like pathway to senator and you are doing this grassroots thing. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, what that's been like, because I, I can't imagine it's as easy as, you know, like sitting on the bench and doing these things for the party and, you know, putting in your time and, uh, you know, doing all the fundraising and, you know, stumping for other candidates and so on. And then like slowly working your way up the ladder so that yeah. you can be in position to run, right? Like what's it been like not going that route? Well, you know, in many ways, it, yes, it's a harder route, but in many mm. ways it's, it's magical, you know, because <laughs> I, I love people and I love connecting with people and having them recognize the power that we each have to be able to unite collectively, get things done and, and just work for each other. Right. And so, you know, just a little more detail of, of what it, it's been like for me. And you know, as I mentioned, you know, my first run for Congress in 2019, it, it really looked like me with, you know, my fiance, some supporters at our kitchen table. And we're like, we're going to do this thing. We're going to run for Congress because we need to have better representation and we're just going to build it from scratch. And then I showed up at a, at a uh, what's, what you call like a, not a memorial, but sort of like a, a statue in, in Columbus here. And, 
and just gave a speech. We invited media. It was like, my name is Morgan Harper and I'm running for US Congress. And you know, there was a reaction from people on the internet, a former state party chair that was like, this chick's going nowhere. She's going to get 1% of the vote. No one will care about this because who is she? She's a nobody. And we just kept building, just showing up at community meetings, hosting meet and greets ourselves. And we were able to just build a movement. And so, you know, after that, because one of my learnings from that campaign was interacting with people that don't trust each other, that that don't feel like we can come together and accomplish anything is we've got to show people this isn't just like I said during the campaign. This isn't about one campaign, one candidate, one election. This is about redefining what community looks like, that politics can be rooted in community. And we've we've got to be doing that 24-7, 365. So started an organization called Columbus Stand Up after that last campaign. And we just got to work beginning the pandemic delivering 30,000 masks throughout Franklin County. We're not waiting for people to tell us what to do. We know what we need and we can just do it for each other. Got them to homeless shelters. We started a ride share program, get people to the polls to vote, to vaccine appointments. And so that, you know, when people are like, what's grassroots, that's grassroots. And so when you do that level of work, when fast forward, you know, we launched the Senate campaign in August of last year. Yeah, we have a rally outside the state house and we have 300 people that show up in one of the last Saturdays of the summer to hear from midterm election candidate for U.S. Senate for a Democratic primary in August. And the primary is not till mm. May. Why is that? Because people actually believe in real things, in authenticity. Mm. We're starving mm. for it. And so that, you know, is, is the style of politics that I'm after. And yeah, it's more work, but it's also, it's real. Because once people believe in that way and they're engaging in that way, then they will do things like mobilize to become a volunteer and drive strangers during a pandemic to get them to vaccine appointments. They will do things like show up to pick up, you know, we have to get as when we, before we started this 3000 signatures, if we can to submit, to get on the ballot and they'll take a couple of those and, and engage their networks to get signatures for you. This isn't about an individual. This is about our community and community can be defined as an entire state of Ohio in my perspective. And by extension, our country, when we start having leaders that have that mindset of, in, of mobilizing us, engaging in us and believing in us and then creating vehicles for us to come together to do big things. Hmm. Well, so that's all so wonderful that you're able to sort of like go around this sort of like the party machinery basically and do your own thing. But, you know, we were talking, you know, earlier before we started recording and, you know, there are certain barriers, aren't there, about uh, to get on the ballot and so on. What's that been like? Yeah, you know, the biggest barrier really is, well, one, money, you know, so Yes, it's always nice when you have more money. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, and when you're, you know, kind of more of a party person, it's a little easier to attract those resources. But especially as we've seen in a lot of democratic politics over the last few years in Ohio and other places, all the money in the world isn't guaranteeing victory if people don't believe in what you're saying or who's selling it, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's where I think it's more important to have that authentic connection on the ground. But yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely is more challenging, but I just think we're at this point where we just don't have a lot of other options, right? You know, people just mm-hmm. don't believe in the traditional. And so we really need to start just putting the work in, building those connections and trying to, to connect and engage as many people as possible. Hmm. Well, I, what's your opinion of the, like, I guess the party system and everything else? Cause it, it does seem like they sort of gatekeep a lot of people out of the system yeah. in a way. 
Yeah, you know, I so I'm a Democrat, and I, for example, have submitted to receive support from the state party in this race. There's another Democrat who's in my in, in the primary, or a main other Democrat who's in the primary with me, who's raising more money, more of a traditional politician type. And you know, my request to the party is: look, we need to be honest with people about who's running this whole era of trying to like pick, you know, as I was saying, like pick the winners and losers, put one person on a, a card mailer that goes out to everybody and pretend like there aren't other Democrats running. It causes us to lose credibility. And so I don't know if they'll take me up on that, but that's my, that's my request. And either way, you know, we have a strategy to just go to people directly, but you know, it's not easy. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a change in mindset. You know, there are people. They have. There are people that have very different views on the role of primaries in politics and whether or not they are effective. There's one perspective that says, "Oh, well, if you have, if we have someone who's a clear front runner and there's someone else running, they're just going to weaken them, and that might, you know, create an advantage for the person from the other party in the general election." And my view is if they're weaknesses, we should know about them as soon as possible, right? <laughs> and if you're if you're capable of being that weekend in a primary, then you shouldn't be the Democratic nominee. And that is why I'm running for this seat is I believe that I am the best person to be able to win in the general. If I didn't think that, I wouldn't be running based on, you know, the dynamics of what's going on in Ohio politics. And so I'm making my case and it's my right to do so in the primary and, and then let the voters decide. And then we'll see, and we'll see where we're at. And, you know, and that to me isn't a perspective that is anti-party or anything like that, but it is pro-winning and pro-people mm. because I have a vision for wanting to be in the seat to be able to implement the type of change that I think will allow for the vision I have of what, what we're all shooting for, which is everybody gets a fair shot, opportunity guaranteed, just like I am so grateful that I got, you know, as a, as a young person. Hmm. Uh, the optimism that you have is just so clear and bright to me. And it, it's honestly very like, it, it makes me want to go vote for you, right? Uh-huh. But <laughs> Ohio, uh, going, have going, I already said that? <laughs> yes, yes, you have. Unfortunately, I'm in Texas, so oh, okay. that, that's not going to happen. But, <laughs> but you did talk about power. And that's something that I think we, we need like more frank conversations about. What is power like in Washington and what's the deal there? And, you know, how is it that it seems to be concentrated so much in the hands of the JP Morgans of the world, the Goldman Sachs of the world? I mean, like just looking up in that, it doesn't matter if it's Republican or Democrat, you look at, you know, people in government and it's almost always like people from large banks. What's up with this? Yeah. I mean, we we have lived through this past 40 year period or so where, you know, we opened the floodgates from a campaign finance perspective. So we allowed Mm -hmm. our politicians to be bribed, you know, through Mm -hmm. different campaign contributions by very large corporations for the most part. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it tracks pretty closely with the economic policy that we've been implementing that has allowed those same corporations to dominate every market sector of the economy uh, to the detriment of small, mid-sized businesses, workers. And so to me, it's no accident where we find ourselves, which is in a pretty dire spot where people no longer believe in Washington because Washington is no longer about the people for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and the the challenge we have is just making folks aware of that. It's something that I believe a lot of people on the far right have taken advantage of 
you know, that, that level of distrust in government is it's cynical because people who support them are responsible <laughs> in, in large part for ushering us to this place. Now, I agree with you. There are a lot of Democrats who have been complicit as well in, in, this, in the system that we currently have. It is a politician problem, as I said, people from both parties. But, um, but let's be real, you know, a lot of the faux populism that is coming from, you know, certain political characters right now is just that. It's nonsense. And these are not, these are not people that have any interest in really changing anything. They're funded by the same special interests that are responsible for getting us to this place. Mm. Well, so let's talk about your economic policy, because that's at the heart, I think, of what, what we're talking about with power and money and influence and all of that. What is it that you want to do for the people of Ohio in, in economic terms that would change their lives and you know make it better for them? Yeah, I'm really focused on people having more economic freedom ownership mm. opportunities and and getting at that you know ability to just make sure everybody has access to opportunity. And of course, you know, maybe you take that opportunity and you just throw it out the window and don't want any want anything to do with it. That's a that's a possibility, mm. but at a minimum that regardless of who you are, where you're born, whether your parents have money, you get that shot. And so to me, you know, some of the economic policy or policies generally that help us get there are one, you know, things that will ensure that we really have a, a free market. And that gets at some of the work that I've done around antitrust competition policy. Right now, we don't, we don't entirely have that when we have so much concentrated power among a few very large corporations in each, in each sector of the economy. It's very difficult, you know, as a, as a smaller business owner to be able to compete against a giant. And we're seeing the impacts of that everywhere, especially in a place like Ohio. Mm -hmm. But then also, you know, that if you want to start your own business, that you have the freedom to do that. So that's one of the reasons why I support things like universal health care, so that we don't have a healthcare system that is just tied to your employer. We saw so many people, you know, in Ohio, for example, during the pandemic, who lost their healthcare coverage because it's tied to employment situation. And, and we're actually all susceptible to those types of fluctuations in coverage that then make it much more difficult to take a risk and be an entrepreneur. But it's a lot easier if you know you have an economic cushion that's maybe coming from generational wealth or whatever. So I think universal healthcare is another mechanism for leveling the playing field and giving people you know, more pathways to having more economic control over, over their lives. Mm. Well, so you talked a lot about, you know, getting people to take risks and become entrepreneurs and so on and, you know, have a shot essentially at being able to create something great. What's preventing them from doing so now? What are the sort of barriers that are put up and who's putting them up and why aren't they doing all of that? Well, I think a lot of people are not feeling like they're able to take, you know, these types of leaves. So for example, you know, if you have a, a kid and, you know, I'm thinking of a guy I met uh, a couple of weekends ago on a barbershop tour who has a child who has autism and needs a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, special care for that reason. And he can't just decide he wants to quit his job tomorrow. <laughs> you know, he's, he's responsible for that care. So, and in fact, the job that he has doesn't pay him enough to cover all of those expenses. So he works a second job cutting hair in order to do what he can to take care of his daughter. You know, so, I mean, a lot of people are just on the edge like that, you know, and especially in a place mm. like Ohio, where we've seen things like 
our manufacturing sector get completely hollowed out. A lot of the typical middle-class jobs have been replaced with retail jobs that are a lot less stable, lucrative, predictable to be able to then, you know, have even a sense of what your schedule is going to be week to week to then think about if you're going to, I don't know, business plan, you know, and and take the risk of, of entrepreneurship. But then, you know, I see a lot of people that are taking the leap, but because of some of these larger market dynamics, like take, for example, you want to start your own grocery store. Well, that's going to be really difficult to compete in owning a gro- mm-hmm. as an independent grocer at this point, given just how much the giants in that sector dominate. So that, you know, that, those are a little, a little bit of the example, but then, you know, even the case of someone who maybe doesn't want to directly be an entrepreneur, a worker, just being able to have more say over the terms of your employment, not just, you know, wages, but also schedule and all of that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I do support unions and and things like the PRO Act, which is a a national piece of legislation to be able to strengthen unions within, you know, different, uh, within the private sector, which is also at a low point right now. Mm. Well, so all of that is sort of like a setup to the thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about because, of course, this show is Bitcoin Fixes This. So what's your interest in Bitcoin and how'd you get into it? And what's your angle on Bitcoin and how it can help you achieve the goals that you have for the people of Ohio? Mm-hmm. Well, I first heard about it when I was at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau a few years mm-hmm. ago, and that we had an innovation team that was talking to a lot of people who were excited about it, and and they would come back from these trips and and share what they were learning. So it wasn't directly in my portfolio by any means, but but that was the first time I just heard anything about it, and it, it mm-hmm. seemed like oh, this is like this niche thing that's developing. Who knows where that's going? Um, but then you know, fast forward to since I launched the the Senate race, and then. I had a lot of people that were just talking to me like, oh, are you like following what's going on? You know, it's Bitcoin and, and different, you know, cryptocurrency and blockchain and all of this. And I was like, oh, this is interesting because, you know, I don't, I don't, I hadn't really thought much about it, to be honest, you know, since the time <laughs> I was at the CFPB, but it was, there was a lot of, a lot of interest. And then, you know, I had people who were small business owners who were talking to me about it, people who had supported the campaign and were saying, you know, some of that was related to some of the investments that they had done in Bitcoin. And and then also just hearing from people, you know, reaching out to me that this was something that was giving them, you know, like a a new level of a little bit of a financial cushion and, and freedom there. So whenever anybody especially people I'm trying to represent are talking to me about something I'm like, okay, I feel an obligation to be able to, you know, be open, learn more what's going on here. This is interesting. And so what I find interesting about it is, you know, it's connection to my overall mission, which really is getting back to the PowerPoint of, you know, decentralizing power. And, you know, to the extent that this is one way for people to be able to have you know, more access to financial, you know, opportunities that people who haven't necessarily felt um, that they're getting such opportunity from the existing financial system, that that's intriguing to me. And, you know, of course, like we have to, especially being someone who's coming from a consumer protection background, we have to be conscious of the risks and mitigate them and all of that. But, you know, just from a baseline perspective as a leader or someone who aspires to more formally represent people, I want to be, you know, responsive to what people are bringing up to me. And this seems like one area that folks are pretty excited about. Yeah. And there's certainly a, a lot of that. I, I don't know if you've, uh, you know, gone on Clubhouse and listened to some of the people that the difference it's making in their lives and so on. But a lot of what you talked about with regard to entrepreneurship, for example, you know, a lot of 
people are feeling empowered to save. And once you save, you can actually save to go start a business of your own and be your own boss and, you know, create goods and services for the market and, you know, have this economic dynamism that really isn't there when money is, uh, I guess, more controlled by, you know, these predatory loans from these big banks or, you know, sort of the financial oppression that I think a lot of people are under. What are your thoughts in regard to Bitcoin's ability to free a lot of people from sort of this, you know, this hegemony of of banks and large corporations uh, over our lives, basically? Well, that's what I'm talking to a lot of people about. And to the extent that Mm. that that is happening, then that's good. You know, I don't, I don't like Mm. concentrated power in any way. (laughs) And I do think that we have been living, you know, under a bit of, I mean, you're calling it hegemony or oligarchy, Mm. you know, it it doesn't, it doesn't feel like we all get to be free in the same way. Right. Especially Mm. when we're talking about financial freedom. And, and so, you know, to the extent that this is offering people that, then yeah, I mean, that, that's something that we need to be exploring. And, you know, I mean, I'll be upfront, you know, there's some people that don't necessarily believe that that's what this is, that they feel like it's mm. replicating a lot of the existing barriers to access in, in the traditional financial system. So, yeah, you know, I'm talking to a lot of people and wanting to get, you know, a lot of different perspectives. But yes, to the extent that this is a way to provide people with that cushion, especially people who haven't been able to get it before, then that that's exciting. So, you know, I want to, I want to hear more about that because that's my overall vision, you know, places like Ohio, there aren't a lot of people here who get to go to Silicon Valley or, you know, have Mm -hmm. any, any touch points with the technology industry that have, or, you know, other industries that have been able to generate a lot of capital in this way, that there are a lot of people Mm -hmm. here whose lives are very much dictated by traditional power structures. And I think especially post pandemic, people are over it you know, and really want to feel mm. like they, they like what they're doing, and they have control over their lives and are able to, you know, prioritize time spent on the things that they want to be doing. Yeah. Uh, and there's a company right in your own city that's working towards that. It's called River Financial, and they are a Bitcoin exchange, basically. And you can you can go buy Bitcoin from them. And they are certainly creating jobs in Columbus, I, I believe. And I think that's where they're based. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're trying to do that. But with regard to what you just said about like sort of the traditional power structures and who has influence and who doesn't, one of the things that I'm starting to realize that I'd love to get your thoughts on is I did go down to El Salvador a couple of weeks ago and just uh, seeing what's happening there on the ground. A lot of what you describe with, you know, your experience, you know, like prosecuting, I guess, some of, some of the banks that were abusive in their loans, That that's exactly kind of what's happening with a lot of these uh, in, in these third world countries, except you know, it's U.S. corporations that are doing it to them in the form of loans and things like that. They are eschewing the IMF and the traditional power structures that come come along with that. And it seems to have freed an entrepreneurial energy in that place that pretty much everyone there told me about. Uh, mm. A lot of people that have been there like 20 years 
we're saying, you know what, like, it's never been like this. And we're getting businesses started, we're getting all of these people coming back, where, you know, a lot of people are interested in real estate here and trying to build things, instead of sort of like being held hostage to, you know, these people that hold the debt. And uh, that seems to me something that's very you know, that's endemic to this power. And, you know, I'm wondering what you think about sort of using Bitcoin as like sort of a way to free yourself from the influence of these giant corporations, these giant banks from this money that's really infecting politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it it's intriguing to me. I mean, I'm not deeply familiar with what's going on in El Salvador. That sounds interesting what you were what you were hearing there. But I'm all about, you know, trying to increase pathways for entrepreneurship. We're at one of our lowest points of innovation as a country. Mm. And a lot of people don't talk mm. about that because, you know, we hear the success stories now and then and the unicorn and occasionally people are showing up and IPOing all this stuff. But really, we actually are not seeing much innovation at all. And it's a lot of the pylon type of technologies. And so, you know, being able to inject more entrepreneurial spirit into our country and that different types of people can have access to that. Yeah, I'm all about that. That I believe is one manifestation of what we stand for as a country and the American dream. Mm. And indeed, that's uh, something definitely across that Rust Belt, uh, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, like, you know, that, you know, a lot of people have been leaving. There's like a depopulation problem. And is part of your campaign trying to, you know, revive that sort of, you know, the spirit that made that region great, like uh, through a lot of hard work, a lot of people with good middle class jobs, a lot of those have frankly left, gone to China in, in in many ways. Like, how do you bring some of that back and make it so that you know, kind of creating businesses and you know, creating manufacturing and bringing middle class jobs back is like something that happens there. Yeah, yeah, that's a big focus. I mean, a real wake up call for mm-hmm. us here in Ohio is our our death rates exceeded birth rates last year. Mm. And, and, you know, and you know, of course, some of that has to do with COVID, but COVID was everywhere. And not every state mm. is reporting a stat like that. And, mm. you know, we've had a really hard time with the opioid epidemic, with the fall on fentanyl epidemic, problems related to the, the crack ep- and cocaine epidemic from the 1990s that have never really been resolved. And so uh, we've had a lot of loss, I would say, as a state in, you know, in addition, literally, but, you know, in addition, things like the manufacturing sector, like you're referencing. And so, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I do think that that's one of the reasons why we need to be creative and exploring different, different products and different technologies that have the ability for people, no matter where they are, to engage and build. And that's, you know, that's something that's cool and, and has potential around, you know, blockchain technology. Because we have to be honest with people is like, I will put a finer point on one of the things you said, because mm-hmm. a lot of people in politics are always pointing the finger or, you know, or blame, you know, towards China. And for sure, I mean, China does not have our economic or national security best interest. China, the Chinese government at, it doesn't have our best interest at heart. But let's be clear. We've had a generation of political leaders who have watched this all happen, <laughs> right? And, mm-hmm. and allowed large multinationals to turn over our manufacturing sector overseas and have done nothing to stop it. Why? 
because they're taking money from these people and allowing them to just pursue profits at all costs, even if it was resulting in the decimation of communities all over places like Ohio, laying the groundwork for something like the opioid fentanyl epidemic. So just want to be clear there, because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of dishonesty in how people talk about how we got to this place. But but yeah, so we want to have these types of opportunities. And then also we want to bring some manufacturing back, but it's never going to look like exactly what it was. Technology has advanced quite a bit. Mm. And so, you know, that's where I think it's even more important to have the ability for, you know, smaller businesses to compete and and have, you know, different technologies that allow people to be globally connected, even in a place like Ohio. That's really important if we're going to be a state that is growing. And that's not, that's not where we're at right now. We're getting outpaced by states that surround us, even in the Midwest. Mm. Oh, well, so how do you bring, I guess, uh, Ohio into this club of, you know, innovating states and, and, and things like that? Like, what do you think is needed for the people of Ohio to sort of properly set the incentives so that, you know, you, you have a thriving community of entrepreneurs? Yeah. Well, you know, some of the structural things that I've talked about related to antitrust competition policy, I think that will help to make the market more open so that even, you know, in places like Ohio, if you start a business, you're going to be able to compete. But then also some of that is leadership. I mean, we did see that, you know, probably you're not watching economic announcements as closely as I am in Ohio, Mm -hmm. but there was a pretty big one here, you know, that Intel uh, was announcing that they're going to be opening up a semiconductor chip manufacturing plant here in central Ohio, which is where I'm based and, you know, huge Mm -hmm. investment there to be, to be creating semiconductor chips, which is one of the issues connected to the supply chain and that we have turned over production of these chips to Asia for the most part. And it's left us in a more vulnerable position economically as a country. And so that's a huge announcement. I mean, it's uh, billions of dollars, thousands of jobs, now, that's not necessarily getting at, you know, some of the corporate concentration issues that I'm talking about, but, you know, a big economic win you know, for our region. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think being, you know, having leaders that are going to be able to negotiate these deals, make sure there's accountability and whatever incentives are being offered to company to have companies come. But a lot of this is also, though, you know, companies that are are putting states against each other to try to win the deal. And so it's not always a long-term strategy. And this plant, for example, great for Central Ohio, but actually Central Ohio is the economic jewel of our state. So how mm. are we going to make sure that we're getting you know, opportunities to places that maybe have been hit hard, hit more hard economically over, over the last 40 years? I think that that's possible, but it does you know, connect to having leadership that's going to be calling out what, you know, is maybe not, not necessarily the impacts that we're looking for. But when I talk to business leaders, one of the most common things that they identify that is a barrier to the future success of a place like Ohio are some of the radical policies that are stripping away folks' basic rights, (laughs) you know, so it's not an economic thing at all. It's actually like young people who maybe want to, or who are deciding whether or not they're going to stay in Ohio or move away or are from another place and whether they're going to relocate, look at the fact that, you know, we have a state legislature that is trying to ban, you know, reproductive rights and, and make, you know, guns, not just protect gun ownership, but actually just unleash, you know, guns into our communities without any basic protections or checks before people would be able to access weapons. I mean, that those are the things that, you know, it's, it's not, I know, usually the focus of your podcast, but that are a real threat to us as a state. And there are a lot of states in the United States at this point that are facing this kind of 
far right extremism that makes it really difficult to you know compete economically as well. Mm. I like what you said about like the rural communities because you're right. Like what what tends to happen is that companies, if they are relocating anywhere, they want to go where there's talent, and usually that's going to be you know, the crown jewels, right? Like the cities where everybody else already is, and it's not necessarily bringing jobs to the people that are in the decimated places. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin mining as sort of like a way to bring jobs to those places? Because, you know, we're finding here in Texas that the places that uh, the miners tend to go Uh, the Bitcoin mining facilities tend to go, tend to be exactly those communities that have been decimated because there's cheap electricity usually in these places or these towns that used to have big factories or something like that. And that's exactly where they want to be. Also, labor is cheaper and, you know, you need construction and things like that. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin mining's ability to help some of these you know, poor communities that have been devastated by, say, a single company leaving or something like that, and making that something that you incentivize through legislation, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been I've been reading about some of the, and I know I think it's New York State is considering whether or not mm-hmm. to have some of the mining take place there. I hadn't heard about the ones in Texas. About how many mm-hmm. people get employed in each of the? The mining facilities, um, at least hundreds, you know, uh, you have to have the construction jobs. Usually there's, you know, you have to hook up all of the the miners into the power grid. And usually there's like some substations that need building out. But, you know, if you already had a, a, a factory town there or something like that, those substations tend to be there already. They're just not used to full capacity. So usually residents have like incredibly cheap electricity just like no jobs to go with it or anything Mm -hmm, like that. mm So it ends up being economically one of the more interesting place because usually fact, uh, you know, companies tend to locate to where the best talent is and and things like that. But if you go to those places as a Bitcoin miner, you tend to usually, uh, you know, come out behind because the electricity costs tend to be fairly high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something to consider. I know I'm talking to a lot of people about and I'd be interested in your thoughts on the environmental impacts of mm. mining. And that's a big concern mm. for a lot of people I'm talking to in Ohio. I don't know what what you've been seeing or mm-hmm. hearing, but that's something that people are really concerned about. Mm. Well, I feel like this is like the right sort of like way to do it is, you know, there's an overproduction of energy in some of these rural communities where you're going to have you know, like previously there was a factory or something, so they needed a lot of energy. Well, that factory left, so there's all this energy production that's really not doing anything. And at least statistically, something like a third of all energy produced never gets used, right? Like Mm. it just kind of gets wasted. So this would be waste energy. And in fact, it would actually harm the environment if you just sort of wasted it. But instead, if you put it into these miners and, you know, like get, get something that helps the people in those communities and get gets them jobs and stuff like that 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 seems pretty good to me now right now like the profitability of mining is such that you can you know run a mining facility probably in the middle of a city because uh, i think 25 cents per kilowatt hour is still profitable but obviously you're going to make more money if you're getting like 3 cents per kilowatt hour in some rural community um many of which you know, are like West Virginia, Ohio, Texas, lots of places in the United States that have 
very low you know, energy rates because there's an abundance of that energy that would otherwise get wasted. That seems to me like the right way to go about Bitcoin mining. I get the concern from the people that think it's using too much, but if it's not getting used, then it sort of makes sense that you would want these things in places where you know a lot of the energy is there but isn't getting used. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I hear I hear what you're saying. Yeah, something something to consider. I haven't heard many people talk about establishing mining facilities here, but I have been, like I said, mm. reading about it in, in other states. So mm. indeed. Well, so I think we're getting up to the top of the hour. And of course, like uh, I want to be respectful of your time. You're a very busy Senate candidate. So where can people find you? Where can people support you? How can people contact you? Yeah, so our website is morganharper.org and then on all social platforms, MH4OH, so like Morgan Harper number four, Ohio. And yeah, and reach out, DM me. I've already engaged every time I've been speaking on, on this topic. You get a lot of engagement, both positive and negative, but I welcome all of it. And uh, yeah, people can DM me. would love to talk more. And if people are willing to support the campaign, even better. Well, thank you for coming on. It's an honor. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It was great talking. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Morgan can be found at... at, uh, at MH4OH on Twitter and MorganHarper.org. Until next time, fiat, Belinda Est.